Today's edition of the podcast is brought to you by CoachMe Plus. CoachMe Plus is the leader in athlete management software and a product that I've been lucky enough to be using for a little over a year now. Only rivaled by the impeccable customer service that Kevin and his staff provides, CoachMe Plus's ability to constantly be amoeba-like in their ability to mold and, and matriculate what you're trying to get across and bring together is, is absolutely fantastic. Their constant pursuit of better ways and better methods and, and innovations and progress to their own product is absolutely fantastic. Go over to CoachMePlus.com. Check out what they got, guys. It's, uh, it's something that I guarantee you won't be disappointed with. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I'm really excited to have Irish Rugby's Head of Athletic Performance and Science, Nick Winkleman, on the show. Nick is going to sit down and share with us his entire dissertation. He's going to go through what they looked at, what they found, and, and everything. It's killer, guys. Uh, what they looked at was queuing, both internal and external, and looked at sprint performance with both middle-qualified and high-qualified sprinters. It's really fascinating. It's a lot to take in. Um, I, I loved it. I think the talk was absolutely fantastic. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Nick, thank you so much for being with us today, buddy. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. So let's talk about your dissertation and where that's going and, and what you're looking at and what you're finding. Yeah. So, you know, I just, just finished everything up a couple months ago and when I, you know, initially looked at the question, so to speak, that I wanted to answer, you know, dealing with this kind of concept of coaching science and attentional focus, it had been looked at from a lot of different lenses. So obviously with a dissertation, you want to try to bring in some kind of novelty, answer a question that hasn't been answered yet. So specifically, what I was interested in looking at is, I think at this point, most people in strength and conditioning and related fields kind of understand this dichotomy of internal focus and external focus or using internal cues or external cues. But I think a lot of us also know that there seem to be circumstances where we might at least intuitively feel, gosh, you know, we should give an internal cue here versus here. It might be better to give an external cue based on a number of factors. It might be experience level of the client or the athlete might be based on the type of task. You know, some people feel like, for example, if they're doing a single leg glute bridge, that they might want to cue them to squeeze the glute versus if they're doing something like a jump or a sprint, it makes more sense to externally cue something in the environment like push the ground or sprint as fast as you can. So what I wanted to do is look at kind of two corners of that. One, sprinting has not been looked at that much. There's a handful of papers biomechanics around attentional focus hasn't been looked at that much and experience level and how experience level interacts with the type of cues you're giving someone that hasn't been looked at uh, too much. So my studies kind of looked at all three of those facets. So at a high level, what we did is we took one group of soccer players. These were collegiate male soccer players. And then we took another group that you could consider highly experienced sprinters. So all of them had at least eight years of experience sprinting competitively. And some of them were still trying to qualify for Rio at the time. So when you look at them, 
definitely we could say that the male soccer players, especially since they're collegiate male soccer players, were kind of intermediately experienced at sprinting because they sprint all the time, but sprinting isn't necessarily the outcome that they're trying to achieve. They sprint to get to the ball and obviously put the ball in the net or pass to you know, one of their fellow teammates. Versus the sprinters, that's what they do. Their intention around technique and technical excellence is their day-to-day job. So we kind of looked at them as intermediately skilled or intermediately experienced and highly experienced. And then the task was basically in, in both studies, we did these a couple months apart, we asked them to run 10 meter sprints. And we asked them to run 10 meter sprints coming off of a force platform. Now, what's interesting about this, it allowed us to capture kinetic data around how they actually sprinted forward, but it also allowed us to really improve the accuracy of our timing. See, we had them come out of a two-point stance, and as many people know with a two-point stance, athletes can tend to rock, they can roll. There's a lot of variability associated with even a two- and a three-point stance, which makes it kind of difficult for research, because especially if the the changes we're going to be looking at are very, very small. We want to mitigate variability as much as possible. So with the force platform, my fellow investigator, Ken Clark, he came up with an interesting way to decrease the variability associated with the start, whereby it was only once the athletes produced 150 newtons of horizontal or backward force, that's when the timing started. So it, it assured that everybody was actually moving forward when the timing system, if you would, clicked on. And then we used a dual beam timing system at 10 meters to ensure that we had really, really good accuracy for that finish time. And it's also important to note that we were working on a 20 meter lane. So they had an additional 10 meters to slow down. That's important because we knew we wanted them to actually run as fast as they can with no apprehension about slowing down. So that was the actual task. It was very simple. We had kinetics on start, and we had timing data for the 10 meters. Now, what were the conditions? Well, we used a within-subject design. So for coaches out there who aren't familiar with research, basically each athlete sprinted under three different conditions. So imagine you're coaching someone, and you changed your cues three times throughout the training session. That's analogous to what fundamentally we did. And that allows us to basically see for that given individual which type of cueing works best. So under one condition, we simply told them to perform to the best of their ability. They had been given prior instruction. They knew the goal was to run as fast as they can. And the reminder was simply one to perform to the best of your ability. We called that the control condition because basically that was the condition where we allow them to run mentally under their own devices, but nonetheless as fast as they can. The other two conditions were your internal focus and your external focus. The internal focus condition, they were told to focus on driving their legs back as explosively as they can. And the external focus condition was focus on driving the ground back as explosively as you can. So you can see with those two cues, the only difference was ground versus leg. It's important to note in all three of those conditions, the cues were given to them no more than 60 seconds prior to them running. And they were given a reminder moments before they actually sprinted forward. So we really tried to make sure that they knew that this was top of mind, that they were meant to focus on it throughout the entire sprint. And again, they were given prior basic instruction that the outcome of the skill was to run as fast as they can. 
Now, from a research perspective, all these conditions were counterbalanced. So some of the people did internal first, some of the people did external first, and then vice versa for the second and the third condition. They did two repetitions of each, and they had about five minutes of rest in between each set of conditions. Now, we also ran basic statistics on the first repetition and the last repetition to ensure there was no fatigue. And we found statistically and practically there was no difference. So we know that any difference between the conditions had nothing to do with them being tired or them just being fresher on the first set. It had to do with the difference in how attentional focus interacted with sprinting itself. So what did we find? Well, for the intermediate experience level, so the male collegiate soccer players, we found an outcome that is very similar to what you see currently in the vast majority of, of cueing or attentional focus research. And that is that the external focus condition was faster than the internal focus condition. Also found the control condition, where they were just told to run under their own devices, was faster than the internal focus condition. And there was no difference between the external focus and the control. Now, we see this quite a bit in the literature that brings in experienced individuals. And what I mean by that is with soccer players, while their sole intent obviously isn't to sprint like a sprinter, they still have to sprint as fast as they can oftentimes. So the robustness, if you would, of that sprinting motor program is going to be higher than a novice that doesn't have any utility to sprint in their day-to-day -day life which means that control condition where they're sprinting under their own devices is already fairly well developed. It doesn't mean it can't get better, but in the context of a single acute setting, it was at least as good as giving them an external focus. Now, why might that be? Well, let's think of the current research on acceleration. The current research on acceleration suggests that horizontal force production is pretty important to running fast. So imagine if you're now a soccer player that's made your way to college soccer, you probably have a certain threshold of speed. And we know that especially over 10 meters, you gotta be pretty fast in soccer. So in doing so, naturally you would have learned to optimize horizontal force production if you wanted to get better at clearing that zero to 10 meter type zone. So the external focus cue was redundant to the implicit motor program, if you would, that this soccer player would have adopted naturally if they were to get faster, which you would assume they're, they're pretty fast if they're playing collegiate division one soccer. Conversely, the internal cue actually threatens that motor program because we are asking them to focus on their leg. We're asking them to focus on a subservient goal, right? The leg is part of sprinting, but it's not all encompassing of everything involved in sprinting, which is why we likely see a reduction in speed compared to the external focus and the control condition. And there's multiple studies that have shown this. Now, what's interesting is how we brought in novices. We brought in, let's say, collegiate individuals of a similar age group who were athletic but did not have any sprinting background more than likely what we would have seen, and this is based on a mountain of data, we would have seen the external focus condition be the fastest, then the control, and then the internal, or the internal and, and control might have been similar. And the reason for that would have been if they don't already have a motor program or a robust motor program for sprinting, the external focus condition would actually have drawn their attention 
towards the most relevant features of the environment to optimize horizontal force, i.e. push the ground back. Whereas under the control condition, they wouldn't have already had that innate motor program because they simply haven't trained it through repetition and the internal focus would have drawn them towards a more irrelevant feature. So hopefully that gives, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone a summary of that first study compared to, to prior literature. Now, what about the experts or what we refer to as the highly experienced sprinters? This is where the story gets interesting. And this is where we believe our study potentially brings about some more novel findings or supports some novel findings. And that is the exact same study conditions were executed for these sprinters. But when we looked at the data, there was no difference in any of the timing conditions. So internal focus, external focus, and the control condition were all the same. Now, that can be a little disconcerting because there's a mountain of evidence that says external focus is better than internal. So how can, in an acute setting, the internal, external, and control all result in the same times for these sprinters? Well, let me highlight a couple facts. Number one, one of the limitations with a within-subject design is you cannot assess for learning. Because each person is going through each of the conditions, all we get a sense of is how those conditions work acutely from a performance perspective. Now, had we brought in 30 sprinters and 10 of them were on the internal focus condition, 10 of them in the control and 10 of them in the external, have them do a couple days of sprinting under queuing conditions, and then brought them back, let's say 72 hours later, had them sprint again, but with no cues at all, in that instance, we could have actually assessed, did something stick? Was there something about that unique cueing that allowed them to sprint at a certain speed and retain that improvement in days that followed? So was there actually a learning effect? We can't assess that with a within-subject design because everyone does every condition. So I share that for one simple fact, that there's plenty of studies that have shown when they have looked between conditions that internal and external during practice kind of work similarly, but it's only when you bring these people back a couple days later that you see, oh, external focus actually allows for better learning and the sticking of what was practiced to occur than an internal focus. So if we had brought these people back and we had done this in a between condition type environment, we may actually still have found that external was superior, but as I said, we couldn't assess that with our current study design. So how do we explain these results? How do we explain that they all are the same? Well, I've already given hopefully part of the answer in the description of the collegiate soccer players. And that is, one, these people have a robust, very robust motor pattern for sprinting, especially for acceleration. Now, if we think about that, you can assume under the control condition where they're sprinting under their own devices, they've already optimized their horizontal force production as best they can, assuming they're operating pretty close to their ceiling in of terms of potential, having been a sprinter for over eight years. Now, the external focus, you could argue, was similar to the control condition simply because we were drawing their attention to a relevant feature of effective acceleration, i.e. push the ground back as explosively as possible. So the question then becomes, how do you explain the fact that the internal cue was equally effective to the control condition and the external focus. Well, this is where you have to start getting into linguistics 
and how information is processed and how information is processed differentially between someone exposed to information for the first time versus someone exposed to information for the thousandth time, for example. So when you're a novice exposed to information, you have to take the information at face value. You've never heard it before. In the case of cueing, you've never probably thought these thoughts while you perform this movement. So when a coach tells you to think about something, you probably focus on it. You do focus on it as authentically as possible. Now imagine you've been getting cued for eight plus years, doing this skill for eight plus years. Think about how many repetitions you've accumulated over time. Inevitably, you've come up with your own ideas, both implicitly through experience and explicitly through thoughts on how things should be done. So what we found out later, and this isn't a part of going to be part of the published results. This was just anecdotal conversations. In the future, we would probably formalize these interview questions. But in speaking with the sprinters, we asked them a very innocent question. We said, what did you find was the difference between the cues? And the vast majority of them said, not a whole lot. You know, in fact, could you remind me of them? What was different? And what we came to realize is by telling them to focus on driving the ground back as explosively as they can versus folks on driving their leg back as explosively as they can, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between those two cues for them. In both cases, here's the key. They understood the underpinning meaning. And as they say in linguistics, they understood the gist of what we were saying. In both cases, they knew they wanted, you know, we wanted them to focus on generating horizontal force, getting forward, whatever way it manifested in their mind. In both cases, they knew that what we were getting at was get out off the, if you would, the starting line as fast as possible. Whether it was ground or leg was inconsequential to them. They understood what we mean. And from that, it was just analogous to the motor pattern that they normally use, which was the control condition. They already had their own thoughts and they already had their own motor program around how to optimize horizontal force. So once they understood kind of how they wanted us to attack, how we wanted them to attack the sprint, they just went about their business. Now, had we given them cues, Jay, that were more about vertical force, you know, push the ground down, where we utilize cues that actually were in opposition to the optimization of sprinting, specifically acceleration, then we actually may have seen the internal external cues be detrimental compared to the control condition because the control condition actually would have optimized the ideal features that allow someone to run fast versus our cues would have been proposing conditions that would require them to pop up and thus run less efficiently. So that probably gives the, the listeners enough background on why potentially there was no difference. So we can think of with an expert, the motor pattern is more resilient to change. And in a lot of ways, that's a really, really good thing. So the external cue didn't add that much more because they were already optimized, but also the internal cue didn't take away that much because they understood the underpinning meaning. But again, a small tweak in that language, a small tweak in the direction we encouraged immediately could have changed the outcome. So we don't write up the results as saying that internal cueing is better but rather an internal cue that gets at a relevant feature for an expert, they're gonna basically understand what we mean. And other results have supported that, where internal cues are less detrimental for experts. 
assuming the internal queue is addressing something that is some level of relevance, and thus the expert could understand the underpinning meaning of the queue. Because at the end of the day, language has to be interpreted, and we cannot factor that out of the equation around attentional focus and queuing, albeit we're trying to be prescriptive with external versus internal, there always is a chance, even with a novice, that they interpret it slightly different. All we seem to know is external cues seem to get you more in the ballpark of helping someone learn a skill than internal cues. Now, in final, to kind of summarize the kinetics, right, the actual kinetic data, what was interesting, Jay, is in both studies, there was no differential outcomes with the kinetics, meaning even if we saw in that first study that external cueing was faster than internal and control was faster than internal, we actually didn't see any of that explained by the kinetic data. And we definitely didn't see any differences in the kinetic data across the three conditions with our sprinters. So funny enough, there's multiple other studies that have shown that kinetics don't necessarily explain why there was a difference between one condition and another. So the, the merging of biomechanical data, kinetic and kinematic alike, with motor learning, if you would, study designs, still needs more vetting. Because at this point, we haven't necessarily connected the two. Because frankly, the reason one condition is better than the other might be so subtle that the kinetics aren't sensitive enough necessary to pick it up. Because it's, never, it's not just one step. Had we connected... And we collected kinetics on every step of the 10-meter sprint, then we might have been able to show, ah, okay. So on average, they're able to produce more force subsequently with each step under the external focus compared to the internal four, for example. So long story short, that's the 180-page dissertation that I submitted a couple months ago. That's a lot to take in real quick. <laughs> so you I, asked. You yo, asked. 100%, and I love it. But looking at it, because knowing, especially based on your position, that long-term athletic development is very important to you, Yes. how does this then manipulate what you're going to be doing in Ireland? So when you really, you know, when we look at this data, it reinforces something that I think as coaches we all intuitively know, and that is the same way that we have to vary and progress and adjust our training plans from reps and sets and programmatically what we do when you're working with a 15-year-old who's just getting into strength and conditioning for the first time versus a 30-year-old that's in the final years of their career. I think what this pinpoints is in parallel to that, there are also changes to how we learn. And in understanding how those changes emerge as we go through these various stages of learning, it also then provides coaches with insights on how your coaching should adjust and evolve to the people you are working with over time based on their experience level and based on the type of skills that you are teaching. So what it really reinforces is two main points. One is when we're working with young athletes – we have a massive opportunity to optimize or influence how they are going to think when we are not present, okay? So what we know is when we're working with a young athlete, primarily using external cues is going to do three things. Number one, 
the evidence clearly shows it's going to allow them to do better in a practice context. It's going to make it easier for them to learn skills, whether it's squatting or sprinting. Number two, an external focus will primarily allow them to learn at a more efficient, effective rate than having not cued them at all or given them an internal cue, let's say. And three, let's say that athlete down the road is playing for a Pro 12, one of our professional rugby teams, or inevitably has the honor of wearing the green jersey playing for the, the Irish national team. And they happen to be an individual that has to kick, and they have to kick to win. Well, let's think about that moment being high pressure, high stress, and let's say that stress starts to get to this person. Well, if all they have ever heard was externally oriented cues in their physical development and let's say in their rugby development, so all they're used to thinking about is where they strike the ball, the trajectory of the ball, the end point of the ball, the environment, right, how the ground feels, all these things that are around them, these are all going to be healthy thoughts, effective thoughts when it comes to kicking under pressure, for example, or sprinting and having a line break, exploiting space under pressure. Conversely, if you've been coached for the last eight to 10 years of your life with internal cues primarily, and now you go back to those, okay, I need to bend my knee at this point. I need to look up at this point. I need to rotate through. And we start deconstructing the movement step by step. What we know is internal cueing can lead to choking and competition. So not only do external cues set them up for the here, the now, and the future when it comes to skill learning and performance, it also acts as a cognitive protective mechanism over choking. And with that, as this person gains experience, what we also know is we want to continue to use external cues. But more importantly, we want to start to give that athlete headspace. So we want to fade the amount of cueing we give over time. So when I'm working with our elite rugby sevens girls, I'm probably not giving them as many cues during a given sprint session as I would their 15-year-old counterparts who are just getting going. Because to drive implicit learning, to drive learning in the absence of a coach, which frankly is the expression of any sport, mm -hmm. we have to give them time to express the skill and get intrinsic feedback about that expression without our words. And trust the fact that they've been doing it long enough that we can start to fade ourselves out of the picture and put them in the driver's seat. So I think really, if I was just to pinpoint how my study affects or reinforces my thinking relative to my current position, that would be probably a fair summary of how I would apply it. That's absolutely fantastic. And brings up some really interesting and, and different points because, again, the, I think that the best one is that at the end of the day, they have to learn to do it on their own. 100%. I mean, we've all said to a team, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be the guy out there making the decision when the game's on the line. 100%, yeah. And I think that the external cueing from the get-go is something that a lot of people can do better. So I think that this is... Um, this is some really awesome stuff, and I look forward to seeing the paper, man. Yeah, it's currently it's submitted. It's under review, so hopefully it gets the nod sooner than later. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I bet, and it's if it's 180 pages, I'm sure that didn't 
that wasn't uh, that, done well, the, the weekend. Well, the paper won't be. The paper won't be. Yeah. The paper's, paper's a little bit shorter. But yeah. inevitably, I will make my dissertation available for people who, who are gluttons for pain and want to read it. So, <laughs> Well, there's plenty of us, man. But yeah. listen, that's absolutely fantastic and killer stuff. And I can't thank you enough for taking some time to be with us here this morning, buddy. That was There's a ton in here, and I, I hope people can, can peel it out because – you know, at the end of the day, if they're not learning, they're not getting better. No. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, out of necessity, the world I lived in with the six to eight weeks to help collegiate athletes get ready for the combine, you really could only put so much mass and so much strength in these guys. It really was about optimization of the raw materials they already had, which at the end of the day is the essence of, of helping someone to learn to get better with what's available to them. Yeah, no doubt, man. But listen, I can't thank you enough for being on with us today. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch real soon, man. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. And a huge thanks to Nick Winkleman for taking the time out to share with us today. Guys, just a ton of information. And obviously, queuing is so important when it comes to teaching our athletes and getting them to perform at a high level. So, you know, understanding the, the effects of the internal and the external cues, both in performance and then how they relate to choking later in their careers it's, it's really fascinating stuff uh guys you know as always if you enjoyed the conversation please share it through the social media outlet of your choice facebook twitter instagram whatever it may be help us spread the word help us get the good information out to the great coaches out there uh, and you know guys we appreciate everything you do for us here at central virginia sport performance we'll be back next week with another awesome guest we will see you then